All right. Welcome to REF. I, I apologize if you're offended by that video. I really don't. That's just too funny. You just... How's your heart? That's what I want to ask. <laughs> you just got to learn to laugh at yourself. Like, we sound ridiculous sometimes, okay? Let's embrace that. Um, okay, one... Um, one other announcement. Um, uh, it seems pretty exciting, at least for us. And uh, hopefully, if everything goes planned, then uh, in June, there's going to be another sorghum fry coming into this world. So, Eliza's pregnant with, uh, pregnant with number three. So, very much looking forward to the uh, questions that are coming from Shelby about how the baby got there. This is a... Uh, Y'all can pray for me on that. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here, this probably wasn't the best idea. I insisted to Liza that I tell y'all tonight, but the problem is her parents don't know yet. So, um, I don't know how this is gonna work. She just said, "Make sure like it still doesn't get public." So, I, I don't know. Don't. Uh, I guess don't put it on. She's supposed to tell them tonight. I guess don't tweet it or they don't check Twitter though. So just. Her parents don't know, so we'd hate for her parents to find out from, you know, Ben Watson rather than their own daughter, so keep that in mind. Okay, um, this whole semester, uh, if you've been coming, we've been talking about relationships and about how uh, relationships are central to who we are because, because the Bible says we're made in the image of a relational God, that He is a trinity, and because of that, we need relationships. It's, it forms who we are. It's how we know who we are. And while the vast majority of you right here tonight are not married, what, I, what we're going to talk about tonight is the Bible's view of marriage. And just look at it. And look at the Bible's purpose for it. And, and while I realize most of you here aren't married, I hope you see tonight is extremely practical. Because there is something that is shaping your view of marriage. You have assumptions right now for what, for what your expectations of marriage should be, so what, what you think it's going to look like. And the question is, are they right? And the Bible assumes that unless you understand the purpose of marriage, and you can freely examine whether you want to agree with the Bible's purpose or not, then marriage actually, actually won't make sense. Because see, what we're going to read, there's going to be some words that, I don't know how it's going to hit you, right? There's going to be words like submit and headship. Uh, and respect and love. And, and the Bible assumes that unless you understand the purpose of marriage, those roles that you're called to make no sense. And if you think about it, it, there's plenty of other areas in life that we get that, right? If you ever played on a sports team, uh, your role is always dictated by your purpose, right? If you, if you played basketball and the purpose of you playing basketball is to get a bunch of accolades and score a lot of points then if your coach asked you to take on a role that passed more than you shot, that really graded against you because it was going against your purpose, which was to score a lot of points. And so you hated your role. But if the purpose was to win, and there was a recognition of that, and you realized that, that this role that you were asked to kind of take on would help achieve that purpose, then you take on the role. And the Bible's going to, I'm going to ask you to consider the definition that the Bible gives you of marriage and the purpose and see if the roles of the husband and wife, if they're actually beautiful in light of that. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, um, thank you for, um, 
Thank you for the privilege of coming uh, before your word. Lord, I know not everyone here is convinced of your word. I know many of us uh, uh, doubt it. Uh, And Lord, I'm thankful that they're here. Lord, would you uh, meet us all wherever we are with the power of your word. Lord, would you uh, help us to see the beauty of marriage. Lord, would you open our eyes. And many of us have, have been, have a really bad view of marriage because of what's happened in uh, our parents' marriage. Uh, many of us have incredibly uh, good views of marriage. And Lord, would all of us, though, to some extent, need to be reshaped uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to see that? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians 5. It's on the back of your handout if you, uh, if you need it. Starting in verse uh, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, lady, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God it stands forever. Okay, don't have an outline on a sheet because it's just easy. Tonight we're going to look at the definition of marriage and then the purpose of marriage. That's it. So first, the definition. Um, Most of this I'm stealing from a guy named Matt Howell. Um, He's at Appalachian State. But in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians, is quoting Genesis 2, where the first marriage happens between the first two people on the earth, Adam and Eve, and was, right, they had no father and mother, right? But God provides a commentary on their marriage that sets forth the essence of what marriage was created to be. And it sets the tone. And what he says is that what marriage is is that man and woman leave their family structure that they were committed to and they hold fast to each other. It is covenant language. That what the Bible is using there is saying that they make a covenant with each other. What is a covenant? Our culture, and a lot of times how we think about a covenant is we equate it with a contract. Right? And when I think about contract, I have a contract with AT&T. And so that my contract with AT&T is I pay this monthly fee and they provide services. And in Starville, it's, it's a below average service. And so many a times where I've actually gotten fed up with AT&T because I don't understand why I don't get service on South Montgomery. And I've actually thought about breaking my contract because... What I'm paying doesn't seem to be, to be uh, worth what I'm getting. Um, but the iPhone keeps me in. Uh, but I could, right? Tomorrow, if I decided I wasn't happy with AT&T, I could break the contract. There'd be some sort of fee, but it'd be over. And that's how we think of, I think that's how we think of marriage. That two people make an agreement to love each other, and as long as we're happy with it, as long as this kind of relationship is working out, so be it. 
But if we're not happy with this agreement, right, if you're not holding up your end or I'm not holding up my, my end, then we either got to reno- renegotiate or we just kind of end it. And there's some fees, right, and there's some pain, but you just end it. But marriage, it's not a contract. It's a covenant. And covenant marriage is loyalty to a person, not to an agreement. It's a promise before God and these witnesses to love your spouse exclusively until death do us part. That's a covenant. So the definition of marriage for tonight is this. It's the lifelong sacrificial commitment for the good of the other. That's what marriage is. A covenant. And I just want to say two things by application about the definition of marriage. We said kind of a little bit this last week. I'm not going to rehash everything. We talked about what love is. But that means that what binds marriage together is not your feelings and not my feelings. When people make vows, if you really listen to it, unless they write their own gooby vows, okay, you never hear them say things like this. My feelings are so strong for you. I love you so much, all right? You're so amazing. They never say that. No, what a vow ends up saying is something into the future, right? I looked at lies and said, I will be your loving husband in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, in plenty and want. Because a marriage is a covenant. It's setting a date in the future and saying, I will be your loving husband on that day and the next day and the next. And, that's, and this is, I'm not trying to be little dating, but this is what we keep saying. You've got to realize that dating is fundamentally different than marriage. Because in dating, you don't make a promise to love into the future. Right? In dating, you're saying, I like you. I might love you in the present, but I can't commit to anything past right now. That's what dating is. That's not bad. That's just what it is. But marriage is saying, I will love you into the future, no matter what. And the second kind of application is that if marriage is a lifelong covenant, if that's its definition, to to sacrifice for each other, for the person's good, then that means that marriage, ultimately, it's a decision. It's a decision that you make. If you've ever uh, heard the song from Ben Folds called From Above, really interesting. It is, um, it's kind of the story about these two people who are soulmates. They don't really know it. They kind of pass each other um, and, and know each other very little. And they end up, they end up marrying somebody else. And so here, here's how, listen to the lines, right? It says, it's not like they were actually ever unhappy in the lives they lived. He married Martha. She married Tom. Just this vague notion that something was wrong, a naked absence, a phantom lip, an itch that could never be scratched. So these two people that didn't marry their soulmate, whatever that means, and they weren't unhappy, but there was just something, right, that it just wasn't connecting. And I think that's how we think about marriage. That there's this mystical connection, that there's this person out there that I have to find. And if I don't have to find that person, then I marry the wrong person and something's going to be missing. And so we start thinking about marriage as I've got to find the one. And we start thinking, right, how do I know if the person that I'm dating is the person that I'm supposed to marry? Because what if I marry this person and he's not the person that God had for me? 
And you'll drive yourself crazy like that. And we think there's some mystical person uh, that, that is out there that we've just got to somehow stumble upon and find. And we're so frantic about, about making sure it's the right one that people start telling us things like this. Oh, you'll just know. You'll just know she's the one. I'm not trying to make light of that, but realize what it's saying is there's this mystical feeling, this certainty that will come that, that has no doubts, and that's the person God has for you. Or, right, or things will get said like this. Well, how do you know, how do you know she's the right one if you haven't dated other people? Right, as if, as if you'll only know who you'll marry if you go through this kind of elimination process to find the right one. How do you know who you should marry? Marriage is a decision. You marry the person when you're saying, the person that you should marry is the person that you're willing to stand up in front of God and others and say, I will forsake all others to sacrifice for you for the rest of my life. That's it. How did I, this sounds so unromantic, I realize that, okay? How did I know Liza was the one? It's like when we made vows to each other. That's how I knew it. Because she and I stood up before God and these witnesses and said, I will sacrifice for you for the rest of our life. So what is marriage? From the beginning, God uses covenant language to enact marriage so that marriage is a lifelong covenant between man and woman to sacrifice for each other's good. That's the definition. And out of that definition then, what's the purpose of marriage? And this is kind of where we'll kind of sit for a little bit. Verse 25 through 27 and verse 32. If God created and designed this thing called marriage, he gets to say its purpose. Right, and it will only function rightly according to the creator's design. In the same way that if the guy who manufactures a car and designs it, it only functions rightly if you treat it according to its design. If you put water in a car, it will not run. It will break down because you, you ignore the designer's design. And because God created marriage according to the Bible, he gets to say its purpose. And please note, right, in the two things that we're about to, about to say, there is nothing in this passage about the purpose of marriage being about, about our present happiness. It's just not there. There is no purpose of marriage saying it's just solely about your present happiness. There's actually a twofold purpose clearly set before us in this passage. The first, look at verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He compares husbands loving their wives to the thing that Christ does when he marries us, which is he makes us holy and he changes us. Which means the first purpose of marriage that the Apostle Paul is going to say is that the purpose of marriage is to make you holy and to change you. That if God calls you to be married, the purpose of him calling you to be married is because that's how he's going to change you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, to make you more like him. God has set up the institution of marriage so that those that he calls to be married, which is anyone who is married, that's one of the main avenues that God will use to make him more and more like Jesus. So one of the purposes of marriage is to change people. 
And this purpose, I just think about this. The purpose is so key. I forget this key every day. I mean, I forget this purpose every day. Because the purpose of marriage is to change a person. Then there's a huge assumption. That assumes that you're marrying a person who needs to be changed. That assumes you're marrying an imperfect person, a sinner, someone who needs to become holy. And so many of your issues, you'll forget this, but try to, try to let this sink in. So many of your issues later on in marriage is going to come down to this foundational purpose that you forgot. You forgot that you married a sinner. You just forgot that you married somebody that deeply needs to change. Or worse, you forgot that your spouse married somebody that deeply needs to change. That's the worst place to be of all. And so marriage is a commitment to love your spouse with the aim of who they will become and who God is making them to be. If you've, uh, I've talked about this before. If you've ever seen Restaurant Impossible, it's one of uh, me and Liza's favorite shows, right? Where this, uh, this kind of amazing chef with this very hard personality, he always shows up to these restaurants who are failing, who are like thousand or twenty, thirty thousand dollars in debt. And so they call him in, and they give him 48 hours to change their restaurant, right? And once he starts, it's crazy. Because he looks at the place, and he basically says everything's got to change, right? He says the food stinks, the decor stinks, the, the, the service is terrible. And so for the first 40 hours, it looks awful. Like it looks worse than when he started. The walls are gutted. The employers are the employees are angry and fighting because their roles are changing, and the owners the owners start complaining. But every time the chef is saying, "Just trust me, just trust me," because what the chef has in mind is the picture of what the restaurant will be. He knows what it's going to be like, and so he's willing to walk through the muck and how it, it might look to be worse because he knows what it's going to become. And what it means if you enter marriage as Christians is that you're loving a person as they are, but towards a goal of what they will become. Because it's two people, it's two people that are sinners marrying each other. And if you're Christians, you are a sinner that has been redeemed and changed and is changing. And now you, by definition of being that person's spouse, are a part of what God is doing in that person's life. And so when you bump into things about your spouse that you don't like, stuff that needs to change, the temptation is to say, well, I guess this is a bad marriage. I guess I need to find somebody else. It's not a bad marriage. At that point, you're realizing the purpose of marriage, to present the other person without blemish. You've bumped into areas in your spouse that need to change. This is the purpose And God is about to use you and your love and your sacrifice to slowly change your spouse. Which means that when marriage gets hard, you don't think there must be somebody better out there. You realize that the better someone is the person right in front of you. And who she's going to be or he's going to be in the future. That's the better person. That's who God's making that person to be. Listen to, listen to Tim Keller. The great thing about Christian marriage is that when you envision someone better to marry, you can think of the future version of the person to whom you are already married. Isn't that awesome? The, the someone better is the spouse you already have. God has indeed given us a desire for the perfect spouse, but you should seek it in the one to whom you're married. 
Why discard this partner for someone else only to discover that that person has deep hidden flaws and sins? So the, part, the first purpose of marriage is to make you holy and to change you. How does that change happen? This, this is some of the beauty of marriage. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? Think about when you, if you've gone on a first date, you know, recently or in the past few years. Right, what happens on the first date, honestly, honestly, it's your best, right? You dress up nice. You cover all your flaws. You like, um, you're polite. You listen. You really engage in conversation. You try to be funny. Um, <clears throat> You try to show that you really like the person, but you don't want to put too much pressure on her, right? Because you don't want to freak her out. You don't want to act overly excited. Because you don't want to mess it up. And that's great, and that's fine. But realize what you're doing on a date is you're posturing yourself before that person. You're posturing yourself in front of that person to kind of give them a false picture of who you are. Okay? It's the only explanation of how I got Liza to marry me. I postured myself in incredibly, incredible ways. Because what you do is you present yourself in the possible best light and hide all your flaws. Because if we're honest, right, the fear of Cinderella, right, that that bell is going to ring at midnight and I'll be seen for who I really am, I'll be seen to be a fake, it rules all of us. And in dating, you just got to cover that up. But see, in marriage, the walls finally come down. They just have to. You can't keep up that game 24 hours a, a, a day, seven days a week. And so your spouse begins to see the real you. Not the posturing of yourself, the selfishness, the manipulation and all of it. And so what happens is you're, you're forced to deal with yourself. Right? If, if you hold a grudge against a friend... I mean, that's painful. But there's a sense you can, you can avoid that. Right? You, you can just kind of change friends or, or just kind of stay away from it and hope it goes away. You hold a grudge against your spouse, it'll just kill the marriage. Like, because you keep waking up next to her. You just can't avoid it. And marriage becomes this pressure cooker that reveals the sin and the flaws that are already in you. It doesn't create them. It just shows what's there. And so I... <laughs> All right, confession. I, I've always been a people pleaser. I've always bowed down to what people think of me because I think that's what makes me matter. And I was aware of it before marriage, sure. Sure, I was aware of it. And I'm sure it hurt people in college, but that deep selfishness, that desire to like manipulate people to make them like me, I never really saw the pain it caused in other people because I could just kind of avoid it. Like, I, you, just, you just can avoid it. You, could, you can avoid it with quick apologies or something like that. But all of a sudden in marriage, I look up. And about three years into marriage, I start finding that me saying yes to everybody, because I don't want to disappoint anybody, at some point means me saying no to Liza. And I start realizing it really hurts her. And I couldn't get away from the pain that that was actually calling her, yeah, causing her. Because now there's someone who I'm committed to and is committed to me and we're in it. And the pain and the hurt of my junk is seen on the, on the face of the person that I love. I've got to deal with that now. And amazingly, right, Liza loves me for who I am but wants me to change. And so sticks with me. And so I can't run. I can't just go find a new friend. Like it's, it forces you to deal with it. Because marriage exposes you. It actually brings your sin to the light. 
of a person that's actually close to you. And then that person moves towards you instead of away from you. And it's amazing. And it's amazing. And you start realizing that, okay, Liza doesn't love me because I'm good. Liza loves me because she loves me. And it's a small picture of Jesus' love. Jesus doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you if you're his because he's married to you and he's committed to your change. And marriage works the same way as Jesus' relationship with you works. We'll talk about that more in two weeks. But the second purpose of marriage is this. It's the whole passage, if you'll kind of read it. Right, if you read through these verses in Ephesians 5, you kind of get lost because you start getting confused. You can't tell whether Paul is talking about like an earthly marriage or whether he's talking about Jesus' love for his church. Like they start being blended together and blurred that you start losing which one he's talking about. And that's the point. The other purpose of marriage, according to this, is that God has created marriage to be a drama, a living picture of how Jesus loves his church, not building his people. That's why in verse 32, right, after speaking about what marriage is, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The second purpose of marriage, the overarching purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. When I say gospel, right, that word means good news. That is simply the word that encapsulates the way that God himself loves his people. So God's created marriage so that the world has a visible picture and a visible taste of the way God loves his people and so that you can taste it. Like, that's amazing. See, I, I don't know how the word submit, right, hits you, and I, I realize that can be a very offensive word maybe, and I don't know how the word, the husband being the head, hits you, and we don't have time to go into kind of all the different roles and what that means. But if you, just think with me, if you will grant the premise that God's purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment to show the world and you how much Jesus loves his church, you might see the beauty of the roles. Because God in his sovereignty assigns the male to take on the role of Jesus in marriage. And then he assigns the female to take on the role of the church. So as they love each other, and to the degree they, they actually picture the gospel, it shows the world in a tangible way what it's like. And it shows each other. And so look what it commands men, right? It's saying, men, when you decide to marry, you are given the role of headship. It's just given to you. Because it's a role that's supposed to demonstrate to your wife and to the rest of the world the headship and the leadership of Jesus to his people. That's an incredibly high calling. It scares me to death. Right? Because before you nod your heads and say, awesome, authority and headship, I guess I just get to run the family. That's baloney. Because the authority and headship is to be used in the way that Jesus uses his authority and headship. How does Jesus use his authority and headship? Taylor, Taylor read it. He gave it up. And he submitted himself. And he emptied himself to serve us. Jesus never uses his power and authority to serve himself and to build himself up. He uses it for the good of us, his church. 
And so that means that when you marry somebody, you take your vows until the day that you die to promise, verse 25, that you will love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a vow of selfless service. Right, Jesus used his power to put it down and to wash his disciples' feet. And he takes on the form of a servant. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to the point that he takes our shame and our guilt so we don't have to pay for it. And the husband is called every day to see that you can't do anything anymore just because you want to. You just can't. Everything now that you do is in light of and in consideration of and in for your wife. Because that's how Jesus works. Your time, your money, your body, they no longer are to be used just to meet your needs and your wants. But now you have to do those things in consideration of and for your wife. And the second way that husband loves their wife as Christ loved the church is to realize that when you take vows, you marry a sinner. And I realize we just kind of hit on that. But this is big. This is the beauty of marriage. One day in marriage, you will wake up. This is a bad day, okay? You will wake up and you'll realize that you married a selfish person. You just will. The worst day is you'll wake up and you'll realize that she married an even more selfish person. But you'll realize that. And at that point, you have a choice. You have a choice what you can do when you realize you married a selfish person. You can look at marriage and you can say, okay... My wife's selfish. I'm going to love her and serve her and sacrifice for her to the extent that she is the wife that she's supposed to be. Right? To the extent that she respects me and deserves my love and sacrifice, I will do it. Right? If she's lovable, if she's kind, if she's respectful, then I'll sacrifice. But if she nags, if she doesn't appreciate me, if she tries to control me, if she doesn't consider me, then I will take back my love. You can do that. You can treat marriage as a bargain, and it will be a disaster. And if the primary purpose of marriage is your present happiness, that's probably what you should do. Right? There's no other reason not to. But if the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment, a play, a beautiful drama put on for you and the world so that people can get a picture of the way Jesus loves his bride, the church, then you realize, okay, Jesus married me as a sinner, right? He didn't marry me because I cleaned up my life. He married me because I could not clean up my life. He had to take my sin. He didn't love me because I was lovely. His love begins to make me love, lovely, but it's not because, he loved, not because I'm lovely. And then you realize that, that there's no amount of me being a faithless spouse to Jesus that will ever make him any less faithful of a husband. Right? When I sin today, tomorrow, and the next day, he never quits laying down his life for me. He never quits being ceaselessly committed to me. And Jesus' unearned, unwavering for love for you as a husband means you can start to be the husband you're supposed to be no matter the actions of your spouse. Because it's how Jesus has loved you. And so you're always the first to love you're always the first to repent. You focus on your sins first. You take her phone calls first. She's first. Uh, in the 1980s, there was this godly man named uh, Robertson uh, McWilkin. 
president of Columbia Bible College. I mean, he did all these things. He's an incredible leader. He's doing an amazing job actually making his kind of seminary one of the best in training Christians. And in 1990, he resigns his post as president. Right? He was, he was at the pinnacle of success. And here's what he told the audience the, the reason he resigned. He said this, My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Bible College. Recently, though, it's become apparent that Muriel is content most of the time when she's with me, but almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she's full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it's clear to me that that she needs me now full time. See, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So, so as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word and integrity, I had to do something. But not just to be fair. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. And if I cared for her for the next 40 years, I'd not even be anywhere near out of debt. Duty could be grim and stoic, but there's more. I actually love Muriel. It's not that I have to care for, I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. That's headship. The willing to say, I will die to anything that dares to come between me and my spouse. Even my personal success. Because it's a delight to do so. And then the same goes for the wife, right? If it's gospel reenactment and God's wisdom, he creates men and women. He creates them different in the way that he's going to change us is by taking on the roles of, of, of Jesus in the church. And he calls the woman to take on the role of the church in submission, right? Verse 23, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 33, respect the husband. And before we kind of end with specific application of that, I just want to say one thing. I know this. We're all allergic to the word submission. We're allergic to it. We hate the idea of it. Because we think it denotes weakness, we think it denotes some kind of lesser value. And we, we just can't go into what all it means. I just want you to hear me say this. It cannot be the case. Because the word submit is the same word that describes how Jesus relates to his heavenly father. That he submits to him in everything. And Jesus is equal in power and glory to God the father. They are equal But the way that they relate to each other and bring about salvation in the world is Jesus is absolutely submissive to God the Father. It is not a lesser calling. It is not not anything to do with value. It's a role. And so the role that the wife is called to is to respect her husband as the church respects Christ, which is incredibly hard. Why? Because your husband's not Jesus. (laughs) And and I'm not Jesus to Liza. And there's going to be days, there's going to be weeks that it becomes mighty apparent that your husband does not play the part of Jesus very well. And he's selfish instead of selfless. He's manipulative instead of loving. But what you bring to your husband, if you're called to that, is you bring a ministry of completion. It's incredible. The Bible makes some astonishing claims. You can look at Ephesians 1 for one of them. It actually infers that somehow the church completes Christ. Okay, I don't completely know what that means because he is complete in and of himself, right? But it says that the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. At the least, it means this, that somehow Jesus Christ has so wrapped himself up with his bride, the church, that he has promised not to experience cosmic joy until he has all of his church with him forever. 
I don't know how that works. But that's how you complete him. And the wife has the privilege of respecting and completing her husband in a way that his family and friends simply cannot. And if you're called to marry in marriage, your love will literally change your husband in amazing ways. Because built into every man is this, is, this man is this desire to know that he matters, that he's significant. That's why the command of respect is there. And you have the privilege that if you love him and you support him and you encourage him and you follow him, even when he fails, I'm telling you, if you're his biggest fan, it does not matter what the rest of the world says about him. It literally reprograms him. It doesn't matter. But second of all, the love of Jesus for you, ladies, if you're a Christian, it allows you to respect and submit and love your husband when he's not worthy of it. Because you have a choice every day. Right? There'll be things that you'll see in your husband that you wish would change, and rightly so, and that needs to change. And it's going to frustrate you. But your choice is this. I can pull back my love, and I can shame him, and I can manipulate him, um, and I can give him the silent treatment and nag him into change. Or I can see marriage as gospel reenactment. And I can give myself to him. I can respect him. I can serve him. And the health of your marriage is largely going to be dictated by that simple but really difficult choice. Why? Because the love of Jesus for you is unending. He changes us. How does God change us? Not by manipulating me. Not by looking at us and saying, well... When I married you, Brian, I didn't know you'd still be struggling with sin like 10 years into our marriage. No, Jesus is not shocked by our sin. He's just not. We might be. He's not. And our sin doesn't make him retreat in his love for us. He took care of it 2,000 years ago. And so he keeps freely giving himself so that it changes us. And this really is saying, ladies, that the respect and the love and the completion that you bring to your husband... God will use it to make him more like Jesus. It's unbelievable. So that's it. The definition, the purpose of marriage, a credibly high calling. I just want you to see that. And in two weeks, when we meet for the final time, right? We're not meeting next week, Thanksgiving. The whole night is just going to be focusing on Jesus' marriage to his church. We're going to walk through the book of Hosea and see Jesus' massive love through the prophet Hosea's eyes. Because what I want you to see is that just, just think about it. What if marriage, what about if this is true? What about if marriage is just a small picture of the gospel? Of how Jesus loves really messed up people like me and you. Just could it be that that's the key for, the, for marriage to go the whole distance? That the way you walk with somebody in intimacy, the way that you walk with somebody in a lifelong relationship committed to each other's change is because you have a Savior that is, that is fearlessly committed to your change. And when you get lost in your spouse's love, it's just a dim picture of how Jesus is lost and you get lost in his love and delight of you. And when you feel the amazing forgiveness of your spouse, it is just a small taste of the deep grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back in two weeks and we'll finish it up with an amazing picture of Jesus' love for, for us. Let's, let's pray. Lord, would you, um, hey, would you look, work in our hearts tonight? Would you call us to see um, the beauty of marriage? Uh, would you call us to see and just dare to, to ponder that marriage, even at its best, is just a glimmer of the way that you delight in us?
and commit to us and will never leave us nor forsake us and love us as we are, but love us to a goal of making us holy. Or we all, whether we're married or not, um, we tend to think that, that the world's problems is with other people, that the problem is other people are selfish and, and not me. Would you open our eyes to see that we are the problem, that there's a greater Savior, and that you love to abide with us even in death. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, we'll sing one last song. It's going to be called Abide With Me. It really is an incredible picture of Jesus' tenacious love for you.